Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're talking about war. We're talking about miniature war. We're talking about miniature war games. And we're talking to Marco Bacota from Raybox Games. Marco, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, man, really glad to have you. This is an episode I haven't done before. I haven't ever gone into this topic, talking about miniature war games. And uh, you're an expert in the field. You're kind of an OG. <laughs> You've been doing this since like the early 90s. And uh, really excited just to kind of get your, your thoughts, your ideas, uh, your story, your war stories, so to speak. Yes. But uh, before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, you're right. I, I was designing games back in 1990, and I, I basically designed games from ni- 1990 to 1997, and then I took a 20-odd year hiatus, and then last year I came back to designing again. So so I'm in a, in a relatively unique position to see things kind of how they were and how they are now. Uh, they were before social media, how they are now, where social media is crucial. And um, uh, basically, uh, how I started in the in the gaming field was as an order-by-mail retailer. <laughs> so believe it or not, it was pre-social media where we would sell things by mailing it to you. <laughs> I don't know if the kids can, uh, or the younger generation can appreciate that. But back then, you know, there was no way to market it except, you know, direct mail. Anyways... Uh, I started doing that, and then uh, quickly, you know, I realized I loved designing games. Uh, aside, you know, obviously I was a fan. I was playing it, and um, the big impetus, or the the first thing that really happened was I was doing a con in London, Ontario. Played um, Space Hulk, which is a squad-based miniatures game box set by Games Workshop, and I, I really loved Space Hulk. And then a couple of friends of mine, uh, who I was working with. We said, like, we were trying to think of what should be our first real game we release. We'd already designed a scenario and a couple other small stuff for role-playing. And um, we're like, we love, Le- we love playing Space Hulk. So we said, let's make a comparable game uh, to Space Hulk, but, but basically a little bit more advanced. Space Hulk being, let's say, a checkers. And the game we came up with, Legions of Steel, being more like chess, if you would like, like kind of compare it that way. Um, and so that's what we did, uh, within a year and a half, we designed the game. We created all the miniatures. We worked in the industry with some of the best sculptors and, uh, we created metal miniatures and, um, created a box set with map templates and everything you need to play in one box set. And then, then from that legions of steel spawned hundreds of different miniatures, as well as expansion packs, scenario packs campaign packs, like all kinds of extra stuff that came from it. So a second edition, well, I, I, we call the blue box edition and stuff like that. So that's kind of like where I came from. Gotcha. And so tell me, like, let's get a good little working definition. What exactly is a miniatures war game? Like what separates that from other types of games? Well, I think uh, as the title kind of suggests, it has miniatures in it. Um uh, but I guess, uh, so more specifically, I think we're seeing a, a, a tabletop war game. So tabletop miniatures war game uh, would be a game that utilizes miniatures as the core pawns or pieces uh, uh, to play through a game. And a beautiful example, and anyone can understand, like absolutely, is just chess. In chess, you've got a board. In a war game, you have your tabletop, your board of of uh, where you have your scenario or your your scenery, and in chess you have pieces that are each different. You have the pawn that has certain powers, you have the queen that has certain powers. Same too in a miniature war game, you have a, a character or a figure that represents a soldier with certain powers, and then you have a separate figure that has different weapons, different powers. Right. So so a miniatures game is a game or a miniatures war game is a game that uses little figurines 
to uh, you know to play the game, and they're the main component of the game. Okay, cool. And so, what separates like a miniatures war game from just a board game that has miniatures? Like, what are the key differences there? So, uh, the difference between a miniatures board game or a miniatures war game compared to a miniatures uh, to a non-miniatures board game is that really the focus in a miniatures war game is all about the miniatures. Do you have usually a lot like 20 or 30 or more miniatures and your focus is on creating an army that is going to compete against another army and your focus is then to use tactics to defeat them in a battle. And uh, a regular board game doesn't even have to necessarily do with the battle itself. You know, there's many different ways or types of board games with different victory conditions of which they, of course, can have miniatures as well. But the, the specific difference is that in a war game, your miniatures are trying to specifically defeat your opponent's miniatures and eliminate them effectively. While in a board game, there are uh, that is rarely the actual objective of the game itself. Gotcha. And how much does movement also kind of play in the difference? I know a lot of miniature war games will use rulers. They'll use like the, the, the tokens that kind of have like curves and stuff like that. And so you don't have to count spaces like you would typically on a board. You know, I, well, I can move three spaces. Instead, you can say, okay, I can move up to eight inches. And then that is that also kind of a major difference? So there are two types of miniature war games. Actually, Legions of Steel uses a gridded map board. So you do use squares. But okay. many... Uh, um, Many war games also do use uh, the ruler, so you're moving without without the the restriction of um, a square a square based or hexagon based movement system, uh, where you count as you move along. So that is 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 a significant difference, but not all miniature war games necessarily use uh, rulers to move. Some of them do use the gridded system, but the fact is you do use uh, you are moving your pieces uh, kind of uh, in any direction that you want to. Usually it's not very restrictive. All right. And so the games that do have the ruler system, do they tend to be more complicated? Is that kind of one of the ways you can tell the heavier miniature war game systems? Or or is it just kind of each you know, different designers prefer different ways of movement? Well, okay. I think it's probably helpful to discuss the different types of war games first, uh, as right. far as miniature war games. So, um, what we have is there's the type of war game which uses a tabletop. So, it physically uses the top of your table, which you decorate with terrain, which could be buildings or shrubbery or hills and whatnot. And then when you have when you're playing this, the your table, your living room table, becomes the scenery of, you know, either an ancient, um, you know, battlefield or a futuristic, you know, far-flung battlefield. Like, like you basically create your tabletop to have all these cool elements to it that you hand make or you buy in your paint, okay? So that, that tabletop war game now, each side generally has uh, 10 to 30 or 40 miniatures per side. And then you, uh, there is no restriction of where you can move. You know, you use your ruler to move from one space to another. So there's your tabletop war game. And then you have your miniatures war game that uses uh, templates, uh, like maps. And in that case, uh, often it's gridded. And that style of game will use the grid for movement as opposed to using uh, measuring tapes or, or rulers. And so an example of the first type of game is like Warhammer, which uh, probably most people are, are familiar with by Games Workshop. And an example of um, a game where you where you combat with, with a gridded landscape would be Space Hulk by Games Workshop. Those two being the biggest systems out there. In my case, I've made Legions of Steel, so which uses the Space Hulk style system in that it uses a gridded format. And while other companies um, like Mutant Chronicles and like Infinity and quite a bit of other companies out there use the, the, the open terrain system where they, where they just use, they use rulers in that. In fact, actually, you know, we're defining it now, but there's no real definition set up in the industry when you talk about one or the other. 
actually. Okay. And so what made you want to do the gridded system versus the measuring system? Well, the big, I personally don't like using rulers. I, I personally am not a huge fan of using a large tabletop to play the game. And I'm looking at this from a uh, consumer perspective, as well as a designer and a businessman perspective. The whole thing about when I created Legions of Steel and the reason that things like uh, box sets exist, like Space Hulk and like um, uh, like some other games that are on the market, um, is so there's is this is that when you have the open system, it requires the player to like create terrain and spend a lot of time, energy, and money to to play the game. They can't just, it's difficult for them to buy the game and start playing it out of the box. So I always felt that was a hindrance and it was a a big, huge step for consumers to take, uh, you know, before committing to a game like that. Well, a game like Legions of Steel or Space Hulk um, or Infinity that's out there or Core Space, which is out there now, is that you could just buy a box and has everything in you need it so you could open the box and start playing. And I think that's a huge difference. And uh, I guess the best way to talk about it is a box game compared to playing like an open, uh, I guess a sandbox game, right? Well, we all know what sandbox is. Sandbox are that, that terminology, which has come from the computer gaming field is basically uh, a game where, you know, when you're immersed in it, you can go anywhere you want in that world. There's no restriction. So a sandbox game and miniatures games is basically you're setting up a tabletop where you're, you know, you can just create whatever you want, but there's a lot of effort to create it in the first place. And that obligation is on the consumer. Yeah, for sure. And so before we go any further, tell me a little bit more about Legions of Steel. Kind of walk me through maybe the initial design process and then just kind of tell me how the game works. And then we'll dive into kind of some of these deeper topics about war games. Okay, sure thing. So Legions of Steel is a box set squad, a boxed set squad level game. And um, it came from the notion that we wanted to create a game which was in one box. Like most board games. Most board games, you buy the game, you open the box, you read the rules, and you play it. Well, miniature games actually were not that way. That's not how they originated. The miniature games started like, uh, like you know, like uh, toy soldiers. So you'd have the soldiers, and you'd have to create the landscape, which was super creative, really fun to do but a lot of work. So our th- our feeling was that we wanted to create something that was easier for the consumer that would give them the feeling of the miniature wargaming without having to spend all that time, energy, and money in creating a big landscape. So we created the box set Legions of Steel. Uh, in that game, it came with like uh, 20 miniatures, enough miniatures for both people to play. So you weren't building your own army. You, were, uh, you got two armies right in the box. And Legions of Steel is a grid-based system. So what happened is, what we did is we created uh, square uh, tile templates that you could attach together. And basically, you can create different maps by, you know, one like uh, hallways, T-sections, rooms. You would just, uh, you would assemble them and create different maps or different scenarios. And then we would supply with rules for that specific scenario, like the meeting of patrols where two patrols meet each other or uh, objectives like you know a kind of capture the flag style objectives and that sort of thing legions of steel came as a box set it had the miniatures it had the boards it had the counters and dice and everything you needed to basically open it up and depending on your quickness of comprehension start playing within the hour so um, that's the basic uh, kind of logistical uh, idea of legions of steel and um, you know of course it had its rules uh, which Legions of Steel was like um, not the simplest game. It would have been a heavier game, but it was very tactical without a lot of burden. So it was still quick playing once you got going, once you knew how to play. And a lot of the fans of Legions of Steel were military. And I, 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 in fact, my buddy who I designed it with was from the military. I personally fought, or I, I was part of the reserve force or the militia in Toronto. So we both had some military background to draw on. And and I think that really imbued the game with something, you know, more real than just uh, 
just something out of, you know, we had a little bit of experience to pull from. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to go into some maybe some deeper things about the game as far as combat and different things like that as we go. I just want to give people kind of an idea of what a frame of reference that, that you were coming from. And right. so one thing I want to get into first, and this is something you just mentioned, you said that Legion of Steel is a squad based game. So tell me exactly what that is and like what are the other styles of game other than squad based? Right. So basically we're talking scale. So squad based game would mean that you would each player would play with around 10 figures or so while a full fledged uh, army game, you know, you, you could play with 10 figures, but typically you'd be playing with 20, 30, 40 figures. You know, it's a big investment in money for the consumer. It's fun though. Like they're not doing it because they're forced to, they obviously love it, but it's a big investment and it's a lot of pieces on the table at the same time. So um, strictly the miniature volume kind of dictates whether it's going to be a squad-based game or what it's cutting a larger game. Okay, and I've seen some miniatures-based games that have like these little, almost like little rectangles or things like that where the miniatures will like sit inside and you'll have maybe a group of five or a group of ten, you know, stormtroopers or warriors or whatever it is, and then you kind of move that big unit around tell me kind of like how how does that like tell me what about that style of game i, I assume that's kind of the bigger that's not really a squad base because it's almost like a little squad in and of itself and if you've got five of those well obviously it's more than squad base so tell me more about that yeah so that's a mechanic that's used to help manage when you have tons of forces so you know if you got eight or ten guys to move around then you move them individually and there's a certain dynamic to playing the game that way when you have 50 miniatures you know if you had to move every single little miniature, that would take a long time or it would be basically could become, you know, kind of boring between turns. Let's put it that way. And that's the big challenge with, with these, those type of games. So what they did is they created a mechanic where you would move as a squad. So a squad of figures, a unit of figures or a section of figures, that's what they're called, depending on what military you're in, um, uh, you know, would be moved in unison until they meet some sort of resistance and then you might start uh, each one will start acting more independently. Regardless, because they're a squad together, they can never venture too far from each other. And that is also a reflection of reality where if in, in the, in a battlefield situation and, and um, you know, your, your, your comrades, they got to stay, you have to support each other. So you never can go too far away from each other. Otherwise you become weak and outnumbered. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense. And so, all right, continue and talk about this. I've seen a lot of uh, these games, a lot of these systems, they have like a points system, a point structure. And they'll say, okay, in this match, uh, each player gets 100 points for their army. What does that mean exactly, and how does it all kind of play into the like overall army size? Well, okay, so points are uh, another mechanic that's used. And, and by the way, uh, I'll also include that I haven't mentioned it yet. Games like Battletech would be in the squad base size type of game too. And Battletech also uses um, points. So a lot of people might be familiar with Battletech as well. But anyways, okay. Regarding points, uh, so the point system is a mechanic where uh, if the game is designed correctly, um, you will have equal uh, kind of um, uh, comparable quality of forces competing against the against your opponent. So you will kind of have the same amount of points and then you use these points to buy your miniatures for that particular battle. So um, uh, you would have like a, a regular trooper might be five points while a leader might be 10 points. And as a player, you can kind of pick and choose in the composition of how you want your forces to look with these points. So you have that sort of flexibility. I suppose when it comes as, as a, example when you play magic or certain card games you know you pick your own cards you can kind of customize your deck that's what you're doing with points you're customizing your army and you'll pick this and that you know do i want a mortar do i want something that could attack long range like a sniper and i'm gonna but I, do i also want some hand-to-hand -hand guys and so you pick and using those points you design your army and then using that army you'll use a specific tactic that you like or that you feel is works so that's what points are 
Okay. And I guess this is also a great way to kind of keep things even, right? So if you have a hundred points and I have a hundred points, then it's a lot more likely to be fair. I might have a totally different makeup of my army. I might have a whole a bunch of little guys and you might have just a handful of big guys or tanks or whatever. But at the right. same time, we're both operating under the same cap, like the salary cap for a, for a sports team or something like that, right? Yeah, that is exactly correct. And some, so this also allows you to handicap like experienced player against the novice. So where the novice might get more points. And also, it also can reflect a specific scenario. So when we're talking about scenario, the objective of one team might have to be to get through the other team to the other side. And they might need more points to do that because the defender obviously is going to be in a much stronger position. So you might say the attacker has 150 points while the defender has 100 points. Okay, that makes sense, especially because a lot of these games are historical based. And so if you were going to do a game about the Alamo, then the guys defending the Alamo who lost historically, maybe they would have a whole lot fewer points than the than the team that's attacking, right? Yes. Uh, uh, so when we're talking historically, often you would still be at a disadvantage and not necessarily have the same amount of points if you want to use a point system. Then the trick there would be is... Um, uh, what would you have done different in the Alamo or, or any conflict, whether it was Stalingrad in World War II? Um, you know, what would you have done different to with the same men or the same soldiers that might have helped you win the war or win that battle? Right. So, yeah. yeah. So you, if you wanted to make it more even, sure. Let's 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 make the points work that way. But you could quite, you might very well know you're at a disadvantage and then that's kind of the challenge of that particular scenario that you're playing. Okay. It makes a lot of sense. All right. Let's switch gears just a little bit. I know a lot of these games use dice, uh, but at the same time, there's also a great deal of skill involved. It's not just random chance. And so tell me kind of the balance for these kinds of games as far as luck versus skill. Well, they do use almost exclusively use dice and sometimes they use cards as well. And I've designed games that use just dice and I've new games that I'm designing that use cards as well. So there's different elements that you could include in your game to, to, you know, to um, create a, uh, a real tactical decision-making style of game. Now luck always exists. It exists in real warfare. Like, like when you're firing your rifle and there's other guys firing at you, I mean, your chance to hit is going to be based not only on your marksmanship, but on the influence of being fired at or, you know, other a hundred different, different reasons. So, um, so what I really guess I'm saying is that, that a randomness is, 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 uh, is fine. Like it, it doesn't become non-tactical just because randomness is introduced. Right. As, so, for example, chess has no randomness. Everything moves exactly the same way it should all the time the same way. When you play these games, different factors can influence, you know, what your chances to hit or to defend or to be hit, you know, including armor values. Is it stronger armor? Is it less strong? Are your forces better trained veterans or are they new green, right? So there's lots of things that come into play other than the, 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 the dice rolls. Um when it comes into into tactics and playing a game, well, what it really boils down to is how well are there's two things: is how well are the rules designed as far as far as realism compared to playability, and this occurs in kind of many different board games. Some it's less important, but when you're playing miniature games, generally you do want a strong sense of realism, but you don't want it to the point where it sacrifices playability, which is what happens a lot. And like the big war games, like the older, you know, uh, heavy war games, like were really a lot more realistic, but also like you was a lot, lot, lot to learn to be able to play that game. So those are the, the two factors you're playing with. And then um, depending the design of the system, you know, will reflect whether or not it requires more or less tactics. Um, a good example is with Legions of Steel and like Space Hulk, where Space Hulk consumers like have referred to when they compare the two is Space Hulk is kind of like a checkers, while Legions of Steel is like chess. So if you play checkers and chess, you know, both can be fun to play, but 
you know, the tactics involved are definitely a bit more enhanced when you're talking about playing chess over checkers. And that's how Legions of Steel, for example, differs over as many of the boxed squad-based games. Okay, and so how do you enhance that tactical nature of it? Like, what, what does that mean exactly? What it comes down to is having mechanics that force you to uh, really think about how you want to handle your miniature or your piece, you know, one piece being one miniature. Um, so that comes from the design point of view. And, uh, uh, if, you know, the more time and effort you, you, you put into your game, refining, you know, the quality of, of the mechanics such that it, you know, as a player, you feel like you're really having making tactical decisions that matter. Um, that's just, you know, smarts from the design point, like your, 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 your ability as a designer and the time dedicated to developing those rules and playtesting them and making sure that they're uh, fair and, and, and that they're not, a, that they can't be abused. Okay. And so continue to talk about reality versus fiction or reality versus playability. You know, a lot of these games get super crunchy. They get super just heavy and complicated. And we, we start talking about full cover versus half cover versus quarter cover and like all the different things. And they change all the die rolls and add dice and subtract dice on it. So what do you think is a good balance uh, of figuring out, okay, this is realistic, but it's also fun. Like tell me kind of your, your design process as, as you, you personally, as a designer, for okay. Legions of Steel and other games, like how are you trying to balance those things out? What are some things that you've learned over the last, you know, 20, 30 years as far as <laughs> how to do this well? Well, I can say this, that it's a conscious decision to choose which route you want to go. So before we started designing, we, you know, the decision was to make it playable, but realistic as well. So on the outset, you have to kind of decide where you want to go with the game. Like, you know, how, how, how realistic do you want it? If I was designing a game set in, uh, you know, the Roman era, um, you know, do I really want to make it that they operate as phalanxes that, that the troops, you know, work within their, uh, you know, their hundred men and that they have to move a very specific way and that, you know, they have to be composed of very specific figures that there is no, you know, there's a, you can't deviate from it because historically they didn't, or perhaps in some cases they did, and then you could specifically do that. So the thing is that off the hop, you got to decide where you want to go with it, whether you want it to be, uh, where you want to land with realism compared to uh, playability. So um, and the thing with miniature war games is generally it's going to be heavier than a typical a regular board game, which might have two pages of rules. So Legions of Steel has, you know, eight pages of rules or seven, eight pages in the basic game. And many of them do have many pages of rules because you have to, there is so many variables that can occur. So when you're playing a miniatures war game, it's an open kind of game. So you have to take into consideration many different variables. And once you have to do that, you know, you have to make a rule to address that variable. So is your guy stationary? Is he walking or is he running? Are they standing behind a concrete wall? Are they standing or they kneeling behind a bush? Are, you know, like, so each, you know, are they lying down you know, behind, you know, on a riverbank? So depending what you want, like you can add in all these different details, which, you know, help with realism, but, from a playing standpoint of view, you have to remember and you have to, you know, always check back on rules until you're familiar with the game, you know, as to what does it mean when I do this and what does it mean when I do that? So um, uh, from our, our point of view, we wanted to have as much realism as possible and just find mechanics that streamlined it. But so that's the challenge. And that's really the yeah. challenge that all, all, all the miniature game designers have is, we want to make it real. We want people to feel like they're like really their guys are, are soldiers in the field. Um, but we don't want them to have to calculate, you know, a hundred different variables before they determine whether or not they can hit their opponent figure. 
Yeah, definitely. And it also is going to play into like how long do you want the game to last? If you're going for a 60-minute game versus a three-hour game, then that's going to drastically affect how many rules you have. You know, Do you have to figure out cover and is it this like long drawn out system with a chart or whatever you're, you're having to think through a lot more variables with a much longer game versus a short one how how long do uh, typical legions of steel games last well the the second okay so now just i'm working on the second edition uh, so the original game went out of print back in 1996 but now 2020 a new one's coming out so i'm streamlining the rules a little bit for the new release you know time has changed and you know kind of the customer base has changed so uh, the game, the way it's being designed now, is virtually the same as the original game with some small modifications, and it can take as little as half an hour to play the game. But I think realistically with setup and whatnot, let's say half an hour to one hour, playing the basic game with like eight to ten figures aside. When you start expanding, like just expanding the quantity of figures will increase the game length even if you don't change the rules you just have more stuff so it just takes longer to play and it easily a legions of steel game with expansions and with extra miniatures can take three or four hours to play i i've seen legions of steel games at gen con that fans have put on that had you know 10 players five players aside and a board that spanned like like uh, like 10 feet long it was huge <laughs> and then, you know, so, you know, the cool thing about miniature games is really you can, um, the players can choose how long they want to play based on you know, kind of the composition and the size of their armies. Yeah. And so what are some of the things that you've streamlined for the new edition that speed the game up? What were some of the things you've cut out? I think what's necessary now for miniature games, what they have to do to address, um, you know, to attract players and not frustrate players with their, their rules is create kind of a tutorial set. So what I've done is I've created a tutorial book where there are three scenarios and each scenario introduces some new rules so that slowly the consumer can start to learn without having to know all of the rules. They can start playing by just knowing how to move and fire their weapon and they can do like a little fast scenario, kind of get those mechanics down. And then the second scenario introduces grenades and like a different kind of, you know, auto fire or different options. And so once the player plays through these tutorials, uh, uh, which should be fun as well, you know, they'll kind of get a grasp for a majority of the rules. And, and that's, so that's one thing that we did to, to effectively streamline the rules in, in, in a, in a bite-sized way. So consumers can learn as they, and players can learn as, as they go along. So that's the major thing that we did. The, um, one thing that Legions of Steel had was at the time when we designed it, you know, it, it had modifiers, quite a few different modifiers, which we thought were perfectly fine. And the, honestly, there's hundreds of fans out there who play Legions of Steel who think it's perfectly fine too. But we found playtesting it now is that people were getting confused a little bit. It just felt a little bit overwhelming for them. We don't want people to become frustrated. So what we did is we kind of like uh, looked at rules where we decided like maybe – how important is this modifier? How does it impact on your tactical decision making when you're playing the game? And um, if we remove that modifier, is there still a tactical decision to make regardless? So like it might be a different one, but it's still, you're still figuring out what you want to do. So without going into details, because people might, might, would, might not be familiar with our specific game, um, we removed or changed that way how modif some modifiers work so that it, there was less to think about when you were on the battlefield. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And now there's different ways to win these games. You know, some games you just have to defeat your opponent, whatever that means. You have to take out all their guys or, or something like that. Other times you have to uh, complete certain objectives or gain certain points for holding certain uh, locations and things like that. Tell me about some of the differences there. Maybe, some. you know, do you prefer anything over another? And, and just some different ways that people have design games as far as the win conditions. Right. So typically what we're talking about each battle, let's call it a battle, is a scenario. So um, from the game, uh, as a game designer in the box set or if or in the in the in the core rule book, you supply the players with some scenarios that they can play. So pre-generate scenarios. Same as role-playing games or whatever. And those scenarios will have different objectives, whether it's eliminate all of the forces of your opponent, 
whether it's a capture the flag situation, whether it's like, you know, get to a certain uh, uh, location and detonate a bomb, um, or whether it's to stem the tide of your opponent from, you know, getting into a certain, uh, you know, into a certain position. So um, there's lots of different, the, 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 the fun thing is that all these scenarios are different and you can kind of play uh, different roles, whether you're the defender or the attacker, or whether you have some very specific objectives that make it challenging and interesting. And then also, as a curveball, you can have secondary objectives. And those are always great. <clears throat> and often the secondary objective could be secret. So in other words, you'll have your primary objective. So your guy, your opponent knows that you, what your objective is, is to, you know, break into this one location and secure it, leave your guys there. So the, he knows that you're going to do that. That's what you're trying to do. But on a secret secondary objective, which could be a token that you have, so the opponent doesn't know what it is, but you do, could be like to do accomplish this mission, but with the least amount of casualties. And then you get extra points if you also, um, you know, complete it with the, with the secondary objective. Um, <clears throat> so that's just a little bit of a curveball that goes in there. Yeah, very cool. And so how does that work? Do you just like draw a random card at the beginning of the game? Maybe there's you know 50 different secondary objectives and you just draw one randomly? Yeah. Yeah. You and your opponent would too. They'd have a secondary objective too. Their yeah. secondary objective could be, yeah, to, you know, uh, like there's a whole bunch of different ones. It's really up to your imagination. But some examples are like, you know, complete the mission with the least amount of casualties. So you can, so it could be a mission, a battle, a scenario, whatever you want to call it. So, so complete the mission with the least amount of casualties, or eliminate your opponent's leader for extra points. So, like it becomes like a sniper card, or it could be like, um, you know, don't leave any man on the field. So even if 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 a figure gets um, eliminated, you still like pretend he's injured, and you you have to drag him along because you don't want no one to die, right? So, stuff like that. That one, of course, as soon as you start doing it, no longer becomes a <laughs> A secret and that's how it works like so um yeah right i've also seen uh some that it just says you have to survive for a certain number of rounds in order yeah. to, order to win you know and, and like we're going or like we were talking about earlier as far as historical games if you're defending the alamo then that player has to defend it for a certain number of rounds and then they could win potentially and so it, it's less about uh you know killing all the other players pieces and that kind of thing it's it's more a time-based thing which is kind of an interesting way if you can kind of create some urgency because like i said a lot of these games will last a very very long time so i think anything you can do to speed the game up and make it more uh, tense is just a, a really cool uh, mechanism to add to the game in some way if you if you found that to be the case that's exactly true so when we're designing our scenarios now the new scenarios our map boards are smaller and and encourage uh, you know, engagement much quicker. So it is very true. Like you, you have to consciously design the scenario that you're giving um, the consumer in a way that expedites the game, but is super fun and tense. Right. And then honestly, players, if they want, and they will just make up their own scenarios and then they can do what they want to their heart's content. And they know, you know, they'll start having their, you know, their eight, you know, six to eight hour Saturday nights where they, okay, we're going to be playing the big one. And then, you know, they designed a really cool big scenario and then they can do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about combat. You know, I think movement and combat are probably the main two factors in any of these games. And so tell me about combat. A lot of times they use dice uh, and just kind of tell me the, the design process for creating a good combat system for one of these games. Wow. Well, you know, that that is a class unto its own, but like, like not even one episode. So let me just tell you, this is the way you do it. And then as long as you do what I'm telling you, you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, how do I narrow this down in a way? Okay. So when we're talking about movement and combat, so let's say we're talking about combat. How do you create a good combat system? In a combat system, there are different elements. One is movement. Another one would be, in my opinion, leadership. Uh, and then a third component would be the physical act of attacking, like actually attacking your opponent's figure, right? So you need to know how your how your figure moves with the landscape. Um, you need to know uh, if 
they can be assisted by leaders that you have in the field. And thirdly, you need to know what you need to do to actually eliminate uh, an opponent's figure. So those are the three things. Leadership I'm putting in there is crucial. Not everybody has leadership, but I feel it's a crucial part of of playing a game that makes it both realistic as well as uh, uh, gives you flexibility and therefore makes it more fun to play. Uh, so with those three elements in mind, um, you know, uh, typically uh, a figure will have a certain amount of movement points uh, where they can move a certain amount of inches or squares if they're walking. And then you can say, in our example, we would that if you're running, you can do twice those movement points, which would still allow you to fire your weapon. And then if you want to sprint, then you'll be using like triple the amount of movement points. But at that point, you can't fire your weapon. And so you sacrifice firing your weapon for your guy either or for your soldier to get to a certain point or to run away, depending what's happening. Right. So that's how you're so you could in the simplest form, there's your movement. And then for scoring a hit or eliminating a figure, you know, typically you will take a look at your the weapon that's being used um, and then. Uh, the range to your target. So my guy is 12 inches from you. My weapon at 12 inches on a on a on 2d6 needs to roll an eight or better. And then you would measure it out 12 inches, eight or better, roll two dice, see if you score a hit, right? So that the, that's the basic of the mechanics, whether it's one dice or two dice or however you want to do that. Although I've come up with, I think, some very cool mechanics for future games that that are different than what's on the market now. And then you have leadership. So basically if a sergeant or a corporal or some sort of leader is close by, they can make it easier for you to hit the opponent through their encouragement. You know, they can make it such that um, you might uh, avoid taking damage because they're telling you to hit the deck. And like, cause you know, they, they and that'll maybe save that particular soldier. Cause the, the sergeant was right there and grabbed him by the scruff of his collar. And like, as you see in movies all the time, now, there is a fourth component, if not more, that generally we don't see in fantasy as much, and it's morale. So um, morale is basically used if you want incidents in the battlefield to force your figures to either be basically become scared. But that's a whole other level of realism that adds a whole other level of rules. So we decided not to use morale because it's just... And many don't because it's just, it's basically a whole other layer of rules that you have to know. If you're doing a very historical game, then you kind of are in a way forced to use morale because it's a real part of battle. In fact, the reality is that like one in eight of the soldiers actually fires their weapons. I mean, this is, and so when in a, in, when you're playing a game and each one of your guys fires their gun, it's not really realistic because almost none of them would actually fire based on morale and being a scared of dying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a, a stat a long time ago where they had studied soldiers in world war two and it was some ridiculously small percentage of, of people of men who had shot their weapon at another human being. A lot of times, yeah. even when they would shoot, they would shoot above or, or, you know, hit shoot at the ground, just try to scare people because they actively did not want to shoot someone else. And so it was interesting because the government had to figure out basically uh, a way to change the training protocols to encourage them, encourage soldiers to actually shoot at people. And it was just a really interesting article I was reading about the psychology of war. And I could see how that could be a really cool thing to add in a miniatures war game, but also like you're saying, make it a lot more uh, crunchy as far as the rules and just a lot more to think about and, and worry about. Another thing I'm curious about, so you want your soldiers, you want your units to feel different and to offer different things and, and abilities and whatnot. And so tell me about like special abilities and how do you, how do you manage that? Cause you don't want it to be overwhelming where you have so many different abilities to keep track of that. You just forget a lot of stuff at the same time you want uh, units to feel different. So how do you kind of balance those things? Well, that's very true. And generally players want to have a lot of variety. They don't, they don't want to be restricted to like, three or four different figures that do different stuff. So this is how we deal with it. And I think a lot of games deal with it. So certainly you could put too much. And over time, if your game stays out there over year after, like, you know, over the five or six years that we kept Legions of Steel going, we introduced more weapons and more figures and more weapons and more figures. And it became like a, a huge weapon chart, right? Okay. So while still giving a lots of choice, 
what you can create are like squad sheets so that where you know um it lists the statistics for the specific weapons that your squad would have so it's a bit you wouldn't bother having all the numbers for all the weapons because you don't have all the weapons on the playing field so that's one way to kind of like at least make it more manageable and and uh easier to play the game that's one thing the second is you can also create just cards for each figure so if you have three different or four different guys you can have the quick reference cards so you can easily see what they're carrying and what they might what the, what the statistics for those weapons are um and another way that i like actually and that i'm that leaning towards doing more for legions of steel is that i want to re- I do want to reduce the amount of weapons. So this is a very real thing that I've thought about. And it's kind of a runaway problem with a lot of war games where there's just so much variation out there that it, it becomes difficult to deal with it. And I use a D6 system, which is 1D6. And a lot of our fans wanted, uh, not a lot, but there was a, a movement to go to a D10 or a D12 system because you can have much more variation. And I was like, well, it's true. That's very true. But I don't want a huge amount of variation because you look at the general composition of a squad, you know, in the, you know, in most of the modern militaries, and they don't each have a different weapon. They don't each do different things. No, they all are carrying M16s, and then there's a thumper, like a grenade launcher maybe, and you might have, uh, you have a couple of heavy weapons. So they, they don't have more than three different weapons in that group, aside from grenades and whatnot, right? So that's not really the way it works. Everybody doesn't get to carry a different gun. You know, unless you're in Stalingrad or in some like war-torn region where everybody's scavenging, which is it's fun onto itself. You know, okay, so so a, a military operates with a limited amount of weapons because logistically it wants to be able to deliver the ammunition. It doesn't want everyone to have a different size ammunition. You know, there's a reason why we all come down to it. So realistically, it's not realistic to have tons of variation. So I'm like, yeah, that's that's the way it really is. So let's not have a ton of variation. Let's create, but you know, a, a set of rules that works with a limited amount of weapons for a standard army. But I don't want to make it boring. I don't want to make it humdrum. So first of all, your system must be designed in a way that regardless of that fact that there's only that there's less weapons available, it's still fun to play in tactical. So that's the first thing. In other words, my suggestion is, look, skim down the weapons, make your system better, basically. And then the second way that I think what we're going to do, and I am very excited about, is create kind of like hero characters. And those hero characters of which you'll have a, you know, a card representing their special abilities, they are the ones that have the really unique aspects to them. Maybe they, they have two pistols instead of one rifle. They can fire twice. Maybe they can move faster. Maybe they can avoid damage faster. So there you give these like spices, these little things that you can pepper into your army that have extra abilities. And you, as a player, will be completely knowledgeable about because you know you're so excited about putting in you know you know tommy the tank frank you know <clears throat> who carries a shield and and a, and, a, and a bigger machine gun because you know whatever blah 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 and so you'll get like excited about having those characters in it so it won't be a uh, you'll know what they do so my the so that's how we're going to deal with it is we're going to strip down the weapons a bit but what we're going to do is introduce heroes and special abilities and stuff like that so that you can have the simplicity of the game while having the flavor, like the extra spice of having these kind of unique characters on the battlefield. Yeah, that's a really, really good way to do it. Now, one thing you just mentioned right there was expansions and how a lot of times you have you know new expansion ideas. And I feel like these games rely on new units and new types of armies and things like that. But how do you avoid expansion creep? Or what I mean by that is how do you avoid the new expansion stuff coming in and it just being so much better than the original that you say, well, why even play with the original units anymore? Like, How do you make sure everything's kind of balanced, even the new cool stuff coming in? Well, that's a very good question. And, and the truth is that many game systems, they they don't like they just just they don't care about that or they don't address that. And what happens is that they even might even cancel old stuff. So suddenly your old troops are, are like useless or they're not even supported anymore. Right. So um, uh, it, that becomes an ethical really decision by the designer. Well, it part, partly ethical and partly um, how good you are as a designer and how much preparation you work, you do at the beginning so that you don't find yourself or you mitigate that sort of situation. So um, for example, legions of steel did expand quickly. And I remember back in the nineties, when I was designing it, 
oh, we really wanted to release more miniatures and releasing more miniatures meant new weapons. And, you know, our goal, like you wanted to keep things alive. You wanted to keep people like waiting for the next thing to come out. Right. And selling that to stores, you know, who would, you know, so you keep your, your, you know, your cash flow moving. Um, so that does happen what you're saying. And uh, what we've done, you'll, is that Legions of Steel is coming out now almost 30 years later and all of the original figures, all of the original miniatures, they are all still will work in the new universe that we've created. Well, the new universe, basically in our case, we've accelerated things 100 years, right? So everybody's old figures will have the same stats and they still work completely fine. So that's just a conscious decision to allow that to happen. And then moving forward, um, the expansions, uh, it should be less, in my opinion, about uh, creating all sets of new weapons, um, but it, and more about creating uh, new scenarios and interesting kind of missions and stuff that, uh, you know, people get excited about. Basically, you have to keep expanding the lore without, like, throwing out the old stuff, right? And um, when you expand the lore and which is like the background and the fiction and stuff like that. And then the, then the scenario book or the expansion that reflects this new lore, it just becomes interesting. You're doing things for a different reason, but you're not necessarily having all new figures. So with that aside, the hero figures that I already mentioned is the kind of the, the way you can introduce new stuff without having to set up a whole new set of rules because the hero figures will follow the same rules and have a few exceptions, but unto themselves. So you're not, you know, you're not going to feel the whole battlefield of heroes. You'll have your regular forces and a few heroes there that add the spice again. And then that's what, you know. And then the, the, the last aspect is just to make sure it's balanced. So you create a point system where even if you introduce a new figure that's a, better than the old figure, the new figure is worth 30 points. And the old ones are worth 10. And it so really three old figures, total of 30 points, should be equal in combat as the one for 30 points. So if you decide not to do that, which some big companies do, they just overgun their new stuff. And then basically everybody's forced to buy the new stuff. So I don't think that's very ethical. And everybody knows it's not ethical. And yet still, and people complain about it, but they still buy from these companies that do that. So like, I don't know what else to say about that. Gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, that all, all that stuff makes a lot of sense. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the manufacturing side of things. You mentioned that the original uh, game had metal miniatures. Will the new one have metal or will it have plastic? And, and tell me about more about the, like, the actual miniatures side of things as far as manufacturing goes. Okay, so our new one will have metal figures. I personally like metal figures. Consumers are split between preferring metal figures compared to plastic figures. The reason the consumers, there's a change is that uh, the people who like the metal figures just like the weight, the quality of having something that feels like an actual piece on the battlefield. The people who like the plastic, generally it's cheaper, the plastic ones, and also it's easier to modify them. So part of, uh, we haven't mentioned this yet. So a big part of miniature wargaming is the painting the buying and the painting of the figures that you're going to have on the battlefield, that's a huge part of the hobby. So paint, paintbrushes, primer, that whole process is a, is a, another big thing that um, change is a difference between a miniatures war game compared to a, just a regular box board game where nobody paints the figures necessarily. Right. In miniature war gaming, everybody paints the figures and, and some of them are really ruthless. Like you can't play with a figure that's not painted. So we should have mentioned that earlier on, but that is a big, huge difference between the two. So one isn't a complete hobby. Miniature wargaming is a hobby unto itself. It's a hobby which includes painting the figures and personalizing the figures, while a box board game is a one-off, generally, maybe a couple of expansions game where you buy the game, you play it, and you put it on your shelf. Miniature wargaming is a hobby unto itself, including like displaying your figures and showing them off and all these other kind of stuff that people love to do. It's such a visual medium. Like, you know, uh, board games have come a long way since the 1990s, even just like the quality of, of, of the games that are coming out now that it's just strictly a board game that you play out of the box. And so so have mi miniatures as well. So 
sorry, that, that's, that's actually going back a little bit, but now let's go back to manufacturing. Um, okay, so like I said, there's two factions, those that prefer metal and those who prefer plastic, and then those who kind of, I guess, would like either or. So um, uh, as far as manufacturing concern, when you want to produce plastic figures, the setup cost is very high. So not only do you need someone to sculpt the plastic figure, which nowadays more and more is done on a computer, so in a, in a 3D rendering program, right? But you have to create the molds, and a good mold, you know, is let's say $10,000 or more. And then from that mold, when you've invested it, you can make lots of plastic figures and the per unit cost is low. Compared to metal figures where a vulcanized mold might cost $60, so really in comparison, much less, but the per unit cost is much higher and you don't really uh, achieve a lot of um, economic, you know, scalable economics. So like if you do 10 or you do a hundred, the price is going to be more or less the same. If you do a thousand, it'll still more or less be the same, right? While the plastic ones, they're very inexpensive to produce and you can just produce tons of them. Yeah. Now, why is the mold cost so much different? Because the one uses a technology of injection molding. So the it's made out of the molds made out of metal. It's uh, very precise and it goes into a very expensive machine that injects uh, molten plastic into it, which then uh, I, I'm assuming it dries and, and, and then, you know, it just opens up and it spits out the piece and it's ready to do the next piece. And it, you can do them really fast and you can do a lot of them. And that mold is, a, is, uh, is let's call it like really engineered. So there's a lot that goes behind making that mold and it has a great longevity. The last, depending what you're doing, it could last for, you know, tens of thousands of figures, especially if there's like 10 cavities. So you're 10, every time you do one, you're doing like 10, 10 figures. The vulcanized mold is how we used to do it back in the 90s and 80s and 70s and time before that. So the material is very inexpensive. Um, and the technology to do it is something that's been around for quite a long time and is fairly simple you still you know there's still our master mold maker so you know it's not just like anyone can create a really good mold but once you've got an experienced technician creating them they're uh, quite easy they're not easy but they're uh, fast to do and inexpensive as far as material is concerned that's the big difference so the 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 molds for the um, metal miniatures are used vulcanized rubber and they might last like you could produce maybe a thousand figures out of that mold while you could produce more than 10 times that amount out of a steel mold. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. What other uh, issues have come up in manufacturing as far as these games go? Like what other things would you want to make sure to tell people about if they were thinking about traveling down this road? Well, the first thing I think I would tell people is that uh, in my opinion, I think that you got to give a box set that includes everything that you want that a player needs. You know, you don't want to create an open-ended system that people don't know where to go with. Like, I bought my army, but I still can't play because I got to find someone else who bought their army, or I got to buy two armies, and now I got to buy two different things. No, let's create one system where everything is in a box, and the person can go home, crack it open, and if they really want to, they can play against each other uh, themselves. I mean, that's another good thing to introduce. I would recommend anyone creating a system now to have a solo play component to the system, or at least have an expansion that comes out. At the same time or shortly after, I would say at least at the same time where the solo play uh, is involved, I'm going to be doing that for when I release the second edition. I'm going to release an expansion at the same time, which includes solo play. And, I, and that's because people want to play. <laughs> and they get home and they, they want to play right away, really. And if their friends aren't around, they still want to play. So and, and sharpen their skills as well. So if you give them a mechanism to do that, you know, you're going to uh, an extra incentive for them to buy the game. And secondly, I've talked to a lot of people who just are, they just, you know, they're kind of isolated. And so they don't get a chance to play often with other people. So having a solo play allows them to enjoy the game. And then from a strictly business point of view, if you have a solo play and it's a good, well-designed solo play portion, you know, for the game, then as opposed to me just buying a game and then 
you coming over and playing with me with my game, that guy's going to buy a game too, because he can play it as well. So, you know, you'll sell more games. <laughs> like maybe I think that's that, because there's, there's been a study on this too. You'll sell 20 to 30% more games because you have solo play. So there you go. Okay, cool. I want to talk more about solo play in just a minute. Any other things from manufacturing that you want to talk about? Okay, well, the other components that you're going to need is obviously you need a box, presumably, to put the stuff into. And then you'll need some sort of map, however you want to uh, play the game. The idea is that you can play the game out of the box, that you're not forcing a player to buy other things so that they can play the game. And in fact, that's the trend that the, the new games are doing it. Like Infinity does that, Core Space does that. Uh, the, the the new stuff out of Games Workshop does that, you know, kind of you can play out of the box. And that is essential now, you, like I feel, if you want to be able to break into the market. Um, I guess the other alternative is to create a set of rules and people use whatever miniatures they want, really. Because once you create a rules and you don't really package it with the figures as a box set, then really someone can use whatever figures they want. They'll just use your rule system, which isn't bad. It's just that you might not sell as many miniatures, right? So. Gotcha. All right. So tell me more about solo mode. How do you, how do you come up with a system to be able to play the game by yourself? Well, there's another class on that, but anyways, so the, um, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. And there's been other podcasts with, with designers talking about that as well. Uh, effectively, uh, well, the good thing about solo play design is that you can design it by yourself because you can you'll actually solo play your game. You don't need other people, right? So that actually is kind of helpful. And um, I mean, there's some key elements involved when you do solo play. So uh, uh, you want to just make sure that the decision making on the part of the player is similar to the decisions that they would make in the basic game. So try to make from the player's point of view, the system the same, right? Like you move your guy, you fire your guy, the way you do, uh, uh, you know, whether you want to avoid being hit, all that stays the same. Like try not to change the actual rules from the point of view of you as the player. Then the new set of rules that you create to create the AI or the artificial intelligence of who you're competing, that can be completely different because that's, that is something that the consumer will be learning anew they already know how to play the game, let's say, presumably, um, so that, that they you can then have the flexibility of, of uh, creating um, your op the opposition, you know, to follow a certain set of rules that are unique from the basic set of how you would normally play with another player. So keep make sure that the player rules stay the same. Change up the rules as far as it comes on the AI portion of it, and then when it comes to the AI portion. You know, uh, you can use cards or you can use dice, um, but basically you want to give them A, B, C, D decisions uh, so that um, either it decides to, you know, move closer and fire at the target, stand and cover the air. Like, you, you, depending on your system, you will choose what it, you know, what you figure it would do. And most solo play stuff really works better with a customized scenario. So... It's hard to make it a solo play work with like any situation. Like it just, you know, it doesn't, it, that's very, very difficult to make that work properly. So you would create specific scenarios for the consumer uh, that, you know, lend themselves to solo play. So, you know, it would be like, like you might have, you have to escape and then the, from this location and then your opponents that are, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, are AIs. You know, they'll react, you know, uh, because the scenario is created where I know that I'm creating it such that the player has to get away, then I know what to tell the AI to do to prevent them from doing that. And it's more specific. Awesome. Well, Marco, this has been great, man. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you would say, maybe someone who's listening to this and thinking about designing their own miniature war game or anything like that? Well, I guess, I mean, the most important thing with any game that you'd be designing is that you're really passionate about you know, the type of game that you're interested in creating. If you're a lot of, uh, a lot of the bigger games nowadays are including miniatures and, you know, on Kickstarter, we find that they, they do very well, but that shouldn't be the motivating factor to, to create a miniature game. 
So if you really love miniature games and you're like really into it, then, then, you know, go for it. And I, I, I feel you have a good chance of creating a, a good system because you're a fan as well as a designer. Right. So that's what I would say for that. Awesome. And uh, Legion of Steel is on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that. Okay. I'll try to make it less than two minutes. So first of all, uh, we're, we're releasing in March 31st, we're doing a classic miniatures release. So it's the original miniatures that we did back in 92. We got the masters of most of those miniatures. So we can re-release them where we're going to be releasing a whole bunch of them. So you can get these classic miniatures. And at the same time, we're releasing a PNP set of the, the, the preview rules, as well as the map boards, everything like that. So you can download the whole game uh, for very little money and you can get the core set of miniatures for like $49, which is like 10, 35 millimeter miniatures. And then we're going to have even more miniatures available on that Kickstarter. So that's, what's going to happen March 31st. And that all is a prelude to uh, raising money to do the big second edition Kickstarter release, which will be in October later this year. And that one will have all new sculpts and all new art and new board tiles and streamlined rules and additional scenarios and stuff like that. And that's going to be a, a much bigger Kickstarter. But we're starting out with a smaller classic and then leading up to the big one in October. And if you go to rayboxgames.com and uh, basically click to subscribe, uh, you can get on our news newsletter uh, list and we can send you updates as what's going on. Awesome. Well, Marco, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks so much, Guy. I really appreciate your time and, and giving me the opportunity to talk with you about this sort of stuff. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? <laughs>